0: Welcome to another founder-to-founder founder interview from Gun.io, your source for hiring world-class tech talent. Today, Gun.io's CEO and co-founder Tejan Yanamandra sits down with Mark Tavener, CEO and co-founder of Xerof, a Swiss financial services company specializing in crypto assets who brings more than 30 years of experience to the role. Okay, here's Tejan. Tejan. Well, I mean, we're super privileged to have you today, Mark. Um, really excited to learn about you, your story, uh, your company, and maybe that's a good place to start. So why don't you tell the audience about uh, your company, how you arrived at the opportunity um, to solve this problem and just kind of walk us through that journey.
1: Yeah, sure. I don't mind doing that, Pleasure. And firstly, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. It's great to be here. And the company that I've founded with my co-founder it's called Xerof. The easiest way to have that stick in your mind is that it's Forex backwards. And that's a pretty good descriptor of what we do. So we are a Swiss crypto asset business and we provide a bridge between the traditional world of finance and the emerging world of crypto assets. Uh, and the reason why a bridge is needed is because these two worlds don't play nicely together. And when you try, for example, and move uh, crypto assets, say Bitcoin, just as an example, and convert that into a traditional financial store of value like US dollar, some would argue US dollar isn't a store of value. um, Those entities uh, don't necessarily play nicely together. So we step in to remove that friction for high net worth individuals and businesses And our big differentiator, as well as being based here in a beautiful Switzerland with wonderful mountains, clean air, and wonderful outdoor life, is that we have a really strong uh, and forward-looking regulator. And we are a business that went and sought regulation, got a license, and operates in a fully compliant and professional way, which differentiates us a little in this market because it is hard. get licenses it is hard to act as a regulated business even though the vast majority of actors do want to 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 act in a professional way um and in switzerland it would appear as you can see that at uh, 11 minutes past the hour one is not allowed to work in the office any longer and the lighting just shuts down so let me just hit the lighting if i can find it yeah the auxiliary lighting there we go. So, you know, it, it's as natural as you like. Leave okay, it in. Okay. And, and Tavner said, okay, uh, the regulation's okay. important at that very moment. You know what? The regulator cut the electricity.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, what what's super interesting is like, yeah, not many businesses, I mean, really, I mean, I guess especially so in, in this industry would go out and seek regulation. But certainly as a consumer of services, That's a huge uh, advantage um, to working with Xeroff. Like, how did you guys even think through that being, like, perhaps a competitive dimension?
1: That was at the very essence of why we started Xeroff. It was to lead with regulation and compliance first. Uh, And how this came about, I need to tell you a bit more about the story of my co founder and I, Nick. Nick Figrintakis, and for any of you that wonder about the spelling of that or how I can pronounce it, you just go to our website, xeroff.com, and it's written up there. Plus, there's a great picture of Nick just to prove that he's a lot more handsome and younger than me. Anyway, Nick and I met um, (laughs) when we were both uh, in the Bitcoin industry. I was working for one of the world's largest miners of Bitcoin. Uh, we developed and manufactured semiconductor chips, our full custom semiconductor chips, which is genuine rocket science. We put those on motherboards. We put them in units. And we manufactured this really robust and highly sought-after Bitcoin mining machine. Nick turned up uh, one day wanting to buy some equipment from me. And the way in which we sold those equipments in those days was 100% cash payment upfront, uh, and then we would tell you when the machines would be ready at some yeah. point and then ship them to you. So, you know, Nick wanted to buy machines. He was a little cautious about giving this company didn't know uh, a very, very large amount of money, multiples of millions up front. But he trusted us. Yes. Uh, he gave us the money. We delivered the machines. And he made uh, a good amount of Bitcoin out of it. So we built this relationship on trust from the early days. And then fast forward maybe, I don't know, three or four years later, they came back to me and said, Mark, I have a real problem. Uh, you know, we've scaled up our Bitcoin mining uh, operations and we've got a fair amount of coin, but we can't find anywhere that we believe is trustworthy or professional enough to help us either bank those coins or convert those coins into euros, US dollars, or whatever it was they wanted to use them for. Have you got any suggestions for us? No. Uh, you know, I thought about this for a while and said, you know what, Nick, beyond one or two names, which I won't go into now because they probably haven't uh, weathered that well with time, those <laughs> those brands and those names, uh, that, you know, there aren't too many other places. So we carried on this conversation backwards and forwards, you know, for about a year, two years, something like that. And, you know, eventually I was curious about what Nick had ended up doing. He still hadn't found a great solution uh, and nor had I. So... You know, long story, super, super short. We said, well, we need to solve our own problem here. Then, If it doesn't exist, we need to solve it ourselves. And maybe we're not the only ones that have this problem. And that was really where the, the genesis, the kernel of the idea for Zerof was born, was around a recognition that for holders of Bitcoin and other digital assets who wanted to have an exchange into fiat, US dollars, euros, whatever the currency may be that there weren't really too many trusted, professional, and compliant solutions that you could turn to. Uh, and so we we built Xerov to fill that gap.
0: Mm. That's powerful. It's interesting. Sort of in the first part of the story, you mentioned that like it, the transaction had to immediately be conducted, paid in cash in full. Is that generally typical? Like... Is credit not something that, yeah? I mean, I'm just curious about that. Like, it's you seem to like uh, describe that dimension of the transaction. I'm just curious why, like, maybe there wasn't like some sort of like, I don't know, uh, credit or something like that, or just like you buy the machine in cash all the time and that's like what you do. I think
1: it, I mean, it's a great question. It's one, um, That pauses me to reflect to be honest with you because i don't have a stock answers i've never really been asked that before (laughs) so you steve you've kind of paused me in my tracks and uh, and forced me to tread water whilst i think but look it it was the it was the standard in the industry which is a very lame lame answer you know just because everyone else is doing that's what we do but thinking it thinking about it on my feet here um I realized that the supply chain was set up to deal with cash payments up front. So most of the components, most of the suppliers that we were seeking or needing to buy components from wanted cash payments up front um, for no other reason than Frankly, the the crypto asset industry at that point in time just wasn't very trustworthy and didn't feel like it was going to be around forever. Yeah. So, uh, if you're the manufacturer of a bunch of power supply units or fans that go into these mining machines and these little upstarts turn up with this new thing called Bitcoin, uh, you know, most of them in their mid 20s wearing, you know, typical attire. Black sweatshirts, trainers, you know, unshaven, yes. and say, Hey, I'd like to place an order with you for $5 million yeah. worth of fans. And then I need $25 million worth of power supply units. And I'd like them all, well, next week, if possible, because you know what? There's a Bitcoin block mined every 10 minutes. And if I don't have more machines pointing at that than anyone else, I'm losing market share. So can we go? You know, the supply chain yes. kind of response yeah. to that, which has been established over many decades, is, Whoa, okay this sounds less than normal so maybe letters of credit to these guys is is not something we should do we should ask for cash up front a to see how serious they are and if they have the cash and b just to make sure if tomorrow yeah. they decide that i don't know you know pink chickens is the next big thing uh, and they dissolve their company at least we've got the cash
0: yeah and it seems like really difficult to do like credit risk modeling on top of a set of assets that are a little bit more they have a little bit more inherent variability, maybe in the price action, yeah. like day to day, you know, that seems tricky. Yeah. Um, and the, the other
1: thing to mention Teja, in that, you know, in that same, uh, uh, stream of logic that I'm, I'm stepping through right now is that some of the components that the Bitcoin mining industry and the crypto asset industry need access to are in supreme high demand. So when you talk about semiconductors, yeah, which uh, are, are really the essence of those machines that mine Bitcoin and process the algorithm, uh, you're competing with mobile yep. phone manufacturers, very big names, you know that I won't mention, car manufacturers, and, and all the yep. other electronic goods. So you're trying to displace years and years of relationships and financial contracts in a supply chain that is producing very very limited amounts of silicon as output through you know arguably only one or two yeah. or maybe three fabrication plants of silicon that are the biggest in the world therefore yep. to command your place and try and take a slot perhaps one of the big advantages is to go with a cash payment rather than doing you know regular payment on invoice or anything else to see if you can buy your way into
0: that supply chain yep. yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, as a consumer of like gaming technology, I remember like <laughs> GPU prices being insane, and it's like I'm I just don't want this yeah. to happen. Just want to play <laughs> the games, and
1: there's a bunch of kids, you yeah. know, somewhere spinning up, You're just consuming yeah. all the silicon <laughs> that they can get their hands on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why can not sort of high net worth individuals? And businesses use, let's say, traditional direct-to-consumer portals. I, I don't know what the maybe like the industry terminology for this would be, but an example of this is, mm. let's say, just to put a name yep. on it, Coinbase. Right? Like, why why are they barred from doing so? Um, just in case people are not familiar with this industry and maybe some of the difficulties yeah, absolutely, of doing that.
1: and great question. And then we get into the complexities of both regulation. And the, the the plumbing, the guts uh, of the traditional finance industry, yep. um, and it goes something like this, yep. as well as you know, I guess an element of trust and the access point. So let's assume I'm a high net worth, yep. uh, a holder of crypto, for example, and I decide yep. I want to use you know one of many very successful and very well regarded online crypto exchanges, of which you know Coinbase is one. It typically goes something like this. I log onto my account and let's say I'm fortunate enough to have a million dollars worth of Bitcoin and I decide I want to sell that Bitcoin, which my personal opinion would be a very foolish move, but some people do. So let's say you know they want to sell a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. You're in your account. You've got your computer screen in, in front of you and you place the order to sell and you see that the order to sell is fulfilled, meaning that someone has both offered and accepted to buy your Bitcoin. And here comes your million dollars. Your million dollars flows into your Coinbase, your Binance, your Kraken, your OKZ. We won't say FTX because you know that's a little bit of a swear word. Um, but it flows into your account. You see it pop up on your screen if you're lucky. Uh, oftentimes what you see is, yeah, they've been sold. And then your fiat account uh, just doesn't show as with a million dollars because there's a delay. So you're frantically hitting F5 refresh, F5 refresh, you know, where the hell has my million dollars gone? Okay, that's quite a worrying, it's quite a worrying process to go through. But eventually your million dollars shows up because thankfully, even though you don't know where that online provider is necessarily regulated and therefore what recourse you might have, if it didn't show up, it shows up. You think you breathe a sigh of relief. You go, right, okay, going to put my bank details in so I can get this money off this platform quickly before I have another F5 screen refresh moment and you know lose five years off my life again. You put your bank details in, you hit send, it shows on the screen that that, that transaction has now been successfully launched. So you sit there looking at your, your, your banking portal thinking, okay, well, either my bank manager is going to call me and say, hey, Mark, great million dollars in your account, wonderful. Where can we invest that for you? Or on your portal, you get notification that the million dollars is there. It doesn't turn up. And it doesn't turn up for day two. And it doesn't turn up for day three. Okay, you get a little nervous. You call up your bank if you're able to get through to your bank these days uh, and, and you know don't have to suffer a chat box. And you start asking the questions. Well, where's my million dollars gone? And eventually, you'll find out, perhaps, unfortunately, that they can't accept it. That either the correspondent bank or your bank has reversed the transaction because it's either come from a known crypto source or it's been marked as a transaction which has flowed from crypto to US dollars. And therefore, that bank can't accept it, the correspondent bank or your bank can't accept it. Because it creates all sorts of automated red flags, anti-money laundering risks, and places the bank at a certain amount of risk if they accept to receive those coins. If indeed they're able to, because most often the messaging system in the traditional banking world won't allow them to receive it because it's flagged as a transaction that they should not touch. So that then gets reversed, gets sent back to the platform of your choice. And you're back to that F5 screen refresh going, when are these funds going to land back? And if you're really unlucky, that crypto exchange now has a red flag moment itself because that transaction's coming back red flagged in a traditional banking system. And the crypto exchange wants nothing to do with anything that raises their business up anywhere on that scale of hey there is a a, a red-flagged anti-money laundering suspected transaction associated with your account. So you as the consumer end up in what I call this this kind of spiral of death. You will get your money back. You will get your money back. That's the good news. But the bad news is it'll take a lot of frustration, probably, and take a lot of time. So what we've done is we've stepped in Mm -hmm. and understanding how these two, different industries don't talk to each other, largely because of a lack of regulatory agreement about how they can work, and using our license, using our understanding of how to fulfill anti-money laundering and know your customer and compliance work, we bridge the gap, we provide the relevant information between the two parties on behalf of our client, give them just enough to allow the transaction to work smoothly without the automated red flags coming up, but not so much that we breach the privacy of our clients and therefore by doing that we allow the transaction to run smoothly end to end.
0: What an emotional roller coaster it must be to be transacting like that large sum of money and not be quite sure like when you have access to the liquidity yeah. for whatever reason. And, and, it, and to your point, it seems to be more, I mean, I don't know if you've seen this based on your experience, but my intuition suggests that that's more common with really high um, amounts in, per transaction, right? It may not happen with a $1,000 transaction, but it certainly probably is more likely to happen as you step up in order of magnitude. Yeah, to you're that, absolutely
1: you know. right, Natasha. I think... You know, were we talking about were we doing this this discussion? What ten years ago, then yeah, a one thousand US dollar transaction like that would be massively problematic. We've made a lot of advances uh, as an industry, and you know, here we are now. So you know, a few thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, thirty thousand, maybe up to 50,000, works pretty nicely these days. You know, I, I don't want to over dramatize the point I'm making is on those really high value amounts where you you Absolutely. need to make sure it works well and you don't lose access to your liquidity for a period of time. Because cash has has real value short term as we all know these days. That that that's where we step in Absolutely. and just walk those transactions through a white glove service end to end, as I described, to try and take some of that stress, to try and take some of that, you know, emotional negativity out of it and ultimately just make sure that the high net worth or the business that we're representing and acting on behalf of, um, doesn't suffer that, that delay in access to their
0: liquidity. So from a, let's say, um, value add standpoint, are you guys, um, partnering or exploring partnering primarily with the, I'm struggling with the right verbiage because this is like not an industry that I'm in. So, so pardon me and please feel free to correct me if I'm saying anything like, you know, um, incorrectly, like the, I guess the owners of the money, are you guys working directly with them or the financial institutions typically to facilitate transactions across like their, infrastructure? Or I mean, like what sort of part of the market do you guys typically work with? So we've got with? great
1: relationships and uh, and all of your your, your descriptors are absolutely on the money, Desh. So uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, we, we work with <laughs> traditional banks and the, the way in which we're able to make this flow happen is we have great relationships with what we call tier one banks. So these are proper uh, bricks and mortar banks, not you know what they refer to as neo banks or uh, digital banks that are just using services from other banks with a brand wrapped around them. So we're, we work with tier back, tier one banks, and we built this relationship whereby these tier one banks who have these very stringent um, and well rehearsed and well practiced regulatory requirements around compliance, know your customer and anti money laundering information. We show them that we gather the right amounts of information to allow those banks to work with us on behalf of our clients within the regulatory framework that they're happy with so that they can attest to the authorities who have responsibility for overseeing their action, which oftentimes to the regulators, sometimes the central banks, so they can demonstrate that they're within the parameters within which they need to operate under the, the body which is responsible for oversight to them. So we work very closely with those guys, but we also work yeah. really closely with the crypto asset industry, the exchanges, the liquidity providers who provide us with those coins when people want to come in the other direction and bring, say, $10 million worth of yeah. USD and buy a, a crypto asset like USDT, which is, um, you know, a form of crypto asset. We have to source that particular crypto asset from a provider of liquidity and we work very closely with those providers of liquidity again to reassure them that we're genuine uh, we're providing funds that have gone through all of the checks and therefore not creating any exposure for them as a counterparty but also we want to know that those assets those crypto assets when they come back are also uh, of high grade Comply with all of the regulatory requirements so that our ultimate end customer, when we do the exchange, is getting back coins that we regard as clean and compliant and not that have been used for illicit activities or anything that might place that customer
0: at risk. It's interesting because it's like, I mean, I imagine once cryptocurrency gets converted into fiat, you are not subject to a whole host of. Nation specific or geographic specific regulations that then have downstream effects that people have to manage for and to. Yeah. In terms of where you see the future of, let's say, regulation going, what it's a broad question, but what are your views on, let's say, the global regulatory framework? Like, do you think it will continue to be kind of nation by nation and it'll kind of you know, aligned to a standard way of doing things? Or like, like, are there different geographies that have very different nation-specific paths and regulatory apparatus, ra- you know? Uh,
1: another good question. <laughs> um, so look, I spent two and a half years uh, working with the European Commission, European Parliament to help them um, take evidence from 170 blockchain companies Uh, as they were building their regulatory framework that spans 27 countries in Europe. Uh, So I have quite a jaded view of dealing with regulators and politicians. Um, where, Where I think things will end up is inevitably with regulatory frameworks in most of the major jurisdictions. And the inevitability of those regulatory frameworks, I think is important to acknowledge, but, the real piece of inevitability is that there will need to be some degree of um, compatibility established uh, between those different regulatory frameworks. That is going to be very, very hard to achieve, very hard to achieve, because this is a space that is highly appealing for countries, for geographies, as yeah. it is innovative it has the opportunity to create new economies. Uh, You may have heard of the term Web3. Well, at the very heart of Web3 is this beautiful, beautiful, simplistic delivery that Bitcoin allowed us to create, which is to send a unit of value from one place to the other over the internet and have it leave the place of sending and arrive at the place of destination over the internet. It's almost like teleportation. And that's a really underpinning part of Web3 is being able to have payment rails that don't require intermediaries that allow you to send a unit of value with finality over the internet that support some of these wonderful Web3 applications that are being built. So the prize on offer for the countries that build supportive and attractive regulatory environments is, they hope, that they get more innovators turning up, building more valuable companies that contribute towards further still the success of their country. And therefore, to give up some of those competitive advantages in, I guess, a trade-off move to satisfy harmonization so your regulatory framework can work with another regulatory framework when you might be wanting to retain that competitive advantage is a very difficult situation to imagine.
0: The layman's view, the middle brow view on FTX is sort of this notion that if there were compa- uh, tight regulations, let's say, on FTX, then therefore this scale of fraud could not happen. Is that true? I mean, let I me mean just pose that as a question before stating my viewpoint. Like, do you feel that that's true or do you think that was a case of like straightforward yeah. fraud? Basically, you so, know, I'm going
1: uh, to, I'm, gonna, I'm, I, I'm, I'll answer this as a personal opinion. It's not an opinion of Zerov. Um, it's a straight, straightforward yeah. case of fraud. This was not, um you yeah. know, FTX was not a crypto related crime. This was a financial crime. Yeah. And the, the vehicle oh. that was used just happened to be crypto. In the same way as in the past, vehicles that have been used or asset classes that have been used have been the US dollar, the GB pounds, the euro, uh, stocks and bonds, shares, pension schemes, whatever it may be. It was straightforward fraud, and the burden of uh, oversight was not just and should not just be placed on the regulator because there were other checks and balances many of which are very well established such as the investment community with lead investors needing to do due diligence yep. the banking sector because you know this was not an entity that was not banked it had bank accounts insurance providers uh, accountants uh, auditors you name it uh, so the oversight responsibility was not just with the world of regulation or the regulators uh, and therefore, I think it's a little simplistic to assume that merely the lack of well-developed regulation allowed this fraud to be perpetuated. It was a contributing factor, of course, but there were other adults in the room that should have been looking at what what the children were doing yep. whilst the regulator wasn't busy making themselves a cup yep. of coffee, for example, if you don't mind me using that analogy. you know it, It's not good enough to say that, no. oh, all the adults were away making coffee, and so you know, hey, it's no one's fault that the infants decided to
0: play with a box of matches and a can of petrol and set the nursery on fire. It's, yeah, that's, I I share that view. You know, it's, it's easy to pin this on the newness of cryptocurrency and therefore blah, blah, blah dangers. But it seems like that was a straightforward case of fraud that, you know, I don't know, many people were unfortunately subject yeah, uh, to. So, and we do have the benefit yeah, of hindsight totally because,
1: as you know, we've been through a high-profile trial yes, and the true. jury as found, uh, you know, an individual guilty. And then the legal process is probably going to find the, you know, the other participants guilty as well. Uh, so I think what what's the the benefit of hindsight shows us is that going through a well-established um, legal uh, process the verdict has been that this was outright fraud. Uh, it's not crypto that was in the dock. It was an individual and a bunch of individuals who intentionally chose to
0: act in a fraudulent way. If I'm a developer and I want to get, uh, interested and I'm interested because I, I think like among my friends that are into this industry, um, a lot of them are actually very interested in like making, um, it to use your metaphor more adult and to make it, you know, like uh, less sort of, I don't want to use the crypto bro term because maybe it's like pejorative, but like make it more mature and maybe um, accessible uh, and safe, you know for for consumers to use big and small high net worth and and you know average consumers, um, what would your advice be to them if they're an aspiring developer? You know like can they come work for Xeroff? Where would you have them cut their teeth you know to get started in this industry? Our, our
1: industry, generally speaking, the crypto asset industry, is a wonderful place for developers because so much of the technology that's being built is being built in an open source way. Mm-hmm. and And this is one of the things that really, really gives me high energy about this industry. Is it makes, if you are a developer, you know, if you're a regular Joe like me who can't read a line of code to save his life, it's very opaque. But if you're a developer, you can dig into tools like GitHub, you can access the code, you can have a look at the discussions between different developers, you can have a look at the commits, you can have a look at the reviews. It is there as a wonderful treasure trove to show you not only what's going on right now but also the path along which has been traveled to get to the point that we're at. So if you're a developer, right now is a super exciting time to be in our industry because the vast majority of projects that are achieving scale, that are building very interesting things, are using open source approaches, open source code, very deliberately because they want to attract talent. They want inquisitive minds that think differently to come along and imagine things that we can't imagine at the moment and work with them on those projects so the best advice i would give would be to jump in find do do some basic research yourself find those projects that are developing use cases and applications and utility that resonate with you and then find how you can access the code bases they're using the developer meetups that they're having uh, the community they're building around these particular projects and just jump in and be very frank about your interests, and ask if you can join in, learn, uh, and maybe through doing that, find yourself a position that might appeal to you. Uh, it's just a very, very accessible industry. And what I'm very enthusiastic about and what gives me, a, again, I'll say it, a huge amounts of positive energy is the fact that most of the information you want to understand is there if you put some effort in. Unlike, uh, you know, perhaps, yeah. in the 90s when we were building uh, you know the initial web applications and in the 2000s where, where we were trying to all build businesses uh, and get rich quick off of you know dot coms where we'd been taught that yeah. the proprietary code, the source code was what created the value in your company. we're in an age now where it's not the code that creates the value on its own. It's the team that can realize the vision. And plug all the pieces together to deliver real utility for something that we can't imagine yet is going to have a tremendous appeal to, uh, you know, to, as you look about half the age of me, but you know, the, the people that are come, the youngsters that are coming behind of us, it's that audience that you're building for. Yeah. It's a, just a wonderful yeah. time. So if you're a developer at the moment, I think, you know, you're, you're in the right age. You really are in the right age. Because with a relatively cheap machine that you've probably already got,
0: a relatively solid internet connection, you have access to everything. Awesome, Mark. Well, where can people find you on the internet? Where can people find your company? Do you like to connect with people on Twitter or LinkedIn or anything like that or you want to send them to Xeroff? To you know, you mentioned this at the top, but <laughs> well, you know, thanks, Thanks
1: for giving me the opportunity to shout that out, Tisha. So people can always find me on LinkedIn. You just look for my name. It's on the screen, Mark Taverner. You can find me at email, uh, Mark at Xerof, that's X-E-R-O-F.com. Or you can go to the website, and which is Xerof.com, X-E-R-O-F. So think Forex backwards. And you'll be able to connect with me on there through email, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, always delighted to hear from anyone uh, that is interested in this industry Um, not looking to sell to to anyone that's interested but we'll be super happy to connect you with any of the projects that might appeal to you we've been around uh, both Nick and myself have been around quite a while so it's very highly likely that we know someone at the projects that might appeal to you and if you want to reach out we'll certainly be delighted to give you those introductions awesome Thanks, Mark. What a pleasure. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: You're listening to the Founder to Founder podcast powered by Gun.io's Frontier Network. We release a new episode every Thursday morning, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your music. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. You can follow us online at the Frontier Pod or drop us a line at team at gun.io to get in touch about hiring world-class tech talent.